Turn with me to the Gospel of John, John chapter 19. We are going to see those two wonders that we just confessed. Two wonders here, now I confess my worth and my unworthiness, my ransom paid, my value fixed at the cross. We're going to stare at the cross this morning, and we're going to take the next couple of weeks to just sit in these moments in the Gospel of John at the cross. We've been going through the Gospel of John, and we were in the Upper Room Discourse for a few months, and then we moved into chapter 18, where Jesus is betrayed, he's arrested, and then he's placed on trial. And we talked about the six different trials that the Gospels give us record of. They are three Jewish trials before Annas, Caiaphas, and the Sanhedrin, and then three Roman trials, Pilate, Herod, Antipas, and Pilate. John's gospel gave us the first Jewish trial before Annas and the first and last Roman trials before Pilate. So we were missing three from the gospel of John. That's why we went to the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and we found the other occurrences of these trials. Pilate has declared, even though numerous times he has said Jesus is innocent, I find no guilt in this man. Five times he declares that explicitly. Add two more times by implication. He has said this man is innocent. He has done nothing deserving of death. And yet he's going to deliver him over to be crucified. The voices of the crowds who wanted him dead prevailed. Luke told us that Jesus died because of peer pressure. Pilate just wanted to make sure that he kept the peace and everybody was happy and the loudest voice won. So he declares that Jesus is to be crucified. What I want to do this morning is I want to read these verses. John chapter 19, verses 16 through 25. Um, But I'm, I'm going to ask us, normally I don't ask you to stand again, but I'm going to ask us to stand because we're going to be talking about the cross. We're dealing with the central reality to all of human history. And I know what it's like to sit in a church chair or pew. I know what that's like. I know that there are many distracting elements in this library. I know that there are stomachs that will growl. I know that there are plans for tonight and tomorrow that might pop into your mind. And I want to pray that that would not happen this morning because we are dealing with everything for a believer. We are dealing with the most important subject that could be discussed. So to that end, let's go ahead and stand together, not only in honor of the reading of God's word, but just as a way of of saying this morning, we are going to fight against distractions, and we are begging the Lord to work in such a way. We, We know the Bible is abundantly clear. There are angels in this room, and there are demons in this room. And they would want nothing less, the the demons would want nothing less than for you to think about something else other than these words and the cross. So, let's read these words. You follow along in your copy of God's Word as I read them. Starting in verse 16 of John chapter 19, and as we're reading them, let's, let's give careful attention to every word, to every letter, and feel as if this is unfolding before our very eyes. So Pilate then handed Jesus over to the crowd to be crucified. And they took Jesus, therefore, and he went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha. And there... They crucified Jesus, and with him two other men, one on either side and Jesus in between. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross, and it was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, don't write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. 
Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garment and made four parts, a part to every soldier, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. And this was to fulfill the scripture, they divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. Father, we come before you and we quiet our hearts and we ask that your spirit would give us an ability to see Jesus clearly. Oh, we are familiar, many of us very familiar with this story, with the historical accounts When we come to a text like this and we read it and we we think, yeah, I've, I've read this before, I know this. God, I pray for those who know the gospel story, who know Christ and Him crucified, that this morning we would see, especially as we come to partake of communion, we would see our ransom paid at the cross. We would see the substitution made at the cross. And we would be undone. God, we cannot stand before the cross and hold our heads up high because we see our sin is the reason why Jesus is dying. So God, give us an awareness anew, afresh of the love that Jesus has for us. And Father, if there are any in this room that really don't know what the cross is about, don't know why We sing songs about blood and we sing songs about a lamb dying. And what's the real point of it all? God, I pray that as we begin diving into your word to see clearly what is taking place, God, that my hearers would hear a better message than I preach. Open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law this morning. For the glory of Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated. C.S. Lewis said that the cross is the diagram of love. When you look at the cross, you see love. Why is that? What is the cross? What is crucifixion? The Persians had invented crucifixion. They passed it down to the Phoenicians, the coastal people that lived in the land of Israel. They picked up crucifixion as a means of punishing criminals and traitors and rebels. Then it was passed to the Carthaginians in North Africa. They did uh, crucifixion. They killed people by crucifixion, but it was perfected by the Romans. It was a horrific punishment. It was torture beyond anything that we can comprehend. And yet, when we get to the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, listen to how they describe the crucifixion of Jesus. Matthew says, and they crucified him. Mark says, and they crucified him. Luke says, they crucified him there. And John says, there they crucified him. And that's all. But what about the pounding of the nails, the square nails that would have gone right between the hand and the wrist to hold that arm down to the piece of wood that would have hit a nerve in such a way that involuntarily you would have closed up your hands and wouldn't have been able to open them? What about the ripping of flesh? What about the muscles that were paralyzed by exhaustion and by pain? What about your tendons that were stretched and ripped and broken? What about the compression of the heart? What about the filling of the pericardium? What about the blood flowing down as a river? Why do the Synoptic Gospels, why does John not give us a description of what the crucifixion looked like? There's two reasons. Number one, there's really no need to because the readers of these Gospel accounts knew very well what the crucifixion looked like. They were thoroughly acquainted with crucifixion. They didn't need to be told the details. But secondly, and more importantly, though the physical suffering of crucifixion is unimaginably severe, The cross of Jesus is not about the physical suffering. It's not. 
Thousands of people had been crucified, and many of them were on the cross for longer than Jesus was. It took longer for them to die on that piece of wood. What makes the cross of Jesus Christ the diagram of love, as C.S. Lewis says, is that Jesus is experiencing not just physical agony, but spiritual torment as he is bearing the penalty for our sins, the wrath of God against our sins poured out on Christ. We know how awful crucifixion is, but just think, a billion crucifixions. If you could be crucified a billion times, the physical suffering that you are going through still would not come close to the spiritual anguish of the wrath of God being poured out. So as we look at Jesus, we see horror, we see tragedy, we see indignity, we see our king being conquered. And yet we see our king conquering. This is the beauty of everything we study in the Gospel of John. In the darkest, bleakest moments of human history, God's glory is shining through. In places when we think he is completely out of control, that's when he's mostly in control in those moments. He is in control most in the moments when we feel like, where's God? And breaking through into all of human history in the most triumphant way, God has planned, determined, purposed every single aspect of this account to take place the exact way that it takes place. And John's going to show us that. John's going to show us the glory of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ by the fulfillment of the prophecies that were made about him. Verse 24, just look at a couple of these verses together. Verse 24 of chapter 19, middle of the verse, they divided my outer garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. That's from the Old Testament and that's why John tells us they cast lots to fulfill scripture. Verse 28, after this Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, said, I am thirsty. Drop down to verse 36. For these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture. Not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. John's going to show us that God is in complete control even when it looks like he's completely out of control. He's going to fulfill, Jesus is going to fulfill all these prophecies just for the sake of seeing how magnificently glorious this moment is. Listen to these, pro these probabilities. Um, the probability, the chances that you would be struck by lightning in one year's time, in 365 days, is 7 times 10 to the 5th power, so that's 1 in 7 with 5 zeros next to it. It's 1 in 700,000 is your chance of getting struck by lightning. 1 in 700,000 in a year. Being killed by lightning in a year, that goes up. It's 1 in 2 million. The, the probability of you being killed by lightning in this year is 1 in 2 million. I think you'll be okay. 1 in 2 million. The probability of you becoming president is 1 in 10 million. 1 in 10 million. The probability of a meteorite landing on your house is 1 in 180 with 3, 6, 9, 12 zeros attached to it. 1 in 180 with 12 zeros attached to it. I don't even know what number that is. I can't even say what number that is. Quazillion. That's, we'll just call it that. That's what my kids would say. It's a quazillion. It's a lot. So, for Jesus to fulfill prophecies made about him in the Old Testament. The Old Testament said this is who the Messiah is going to be. For him to fulfill just eight of the prophecies of the Messiah, just eight, somebody did the probability of that, and then they mapped that out in a way that is graphic for our minds to understand. So, for someone to fulfill just eight of the prophecies of the Messiah, it would be like filling the state of Texas, filling the entire state of Texas full of silver dollars all the way up to two feet. So two feet, the entirety of Texas, two feet deep with silver dollars. Then take somebody, blindfold them, throw them out of a plane anywhere that you want in Texas, tell them that they can pick one coin that has been marked out of all of those coins and have them on the very first try pick that coin. That is, that's the probability of the Messiah filling just eight of the prophecies that were made about him. 
Do you know how many prophecies there were made about Jesus being Messiah? 330. 330 specific prophecies regarding Jesus. Give or take some, because some people, by implication, they would say it's a little bit more, a little bit less. 330 specific prophecies that were made about the Messiah. So, what does that look like? For all 330 to happen, in the probability equation, would be 1 in 84 with over 100 zeros. It's about 120 zeros attached to it. That's just impossible. And that's why John's going to say he's fulfilling every single prophecy. God's planned this. Prophecies are just bursting off of the page. The cross is not a good idea gone wrong. The cross is the perfect fulfillment of God's predetermined plan. So let's see that together this morning. Verse 17, after Pilate handed Jesus over to be crucified, they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross. The beam of the cross would be placed upon his shoulders and he would walk paraded through the streets. The Romans wanted their criminals to be paraded around so everybody could see, don't do what this guy did. You know what's going to happen to him. Don't do. They were just using their criminals as billboards just to say, don't, if you don't want to die this way, don't do what he did. And as Jesus is being paraded around, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell us that he couldn't even carry that beam of the cross. He dropped it. So the Romans took a man, Simon of Cyrene. Why is it important to know that he's from Cyrene? We're actually told he is the son of a certain person. Luke gives us his father's name. Why does Luke do that? It's because this is a real person. Simon's not just a made-up guy. This isn't a fairy tale. You could go. Remember, these books were written in the exact same generation that the events happened. So somebody could read this and say, I'm going to go interview this Simon. I know who his dad is. I know where he lives. I'm going to go check out for myself to make sure this is true. And they could do that. Simon of Cyrene is called by the Romans to carry the cross. What an amazing picture. We looked at Barabbas a couple weeks ago to see the, the picture of substitution. Um, Barabbas should die the death that Jesus is dying. Barabbas is allowed to go free even though he's guilty. Jesus is innocent. Simon of Cyrene, the same thing. Can you imagine? Put yourself in Simon's sandals. He's walking. He's from Cyrene. He's not from Israel. And he's walking to Jerusalem, and there's a commotion. And he thinks, hmm, I wonder what's happening. And he kind of looks over. We're told that his children were there with him, so he takes his kids, looks, and, oh, somebody's going to be crucified. Actually, three people are going to be crucified. They're walking down. Come on, kids, let's go. And as he says, let's get out of here, a Roman soldier yells out, you there, come here. We've all been there when somebody points you out and says, come here. And you're me? No, 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 them, them. Simon says, no, not me. I don't want to go. They say, you, come here. Okay, what do you do with your kids? Stay close. Don't watch. What's happening? Pick up this man's cross. What would you think in that moment? I know what I would think. I would want to yell as loudly as possible as I pick up this man's cross. This is not my cross. I'm innocent. The, the man that deserves this cross is here. He's guilty. I'm innocent. I would especially want to make sure that was a known fact by the time I got to the place where I, this man would be crucified because I sure don't want me being put on that cross. As, as the soldiers who are going to do the crucifying see me walking with the beam, maybe they think I'm the guy that's going to be crucified. Please know I'm innocent. And yet... The irony is Simon is the only guilty person between him and Jesus. Jesus is innocent. Jesus is undeserving of the punishment. Simon is guilty. Even though he thinks he's innocent, he is the one who's guilty. And Jesus, the innocent one, is going to be killed in his place. So, Jesus takes his cross. He drops it. He's unable to bear it. But as he's bearing it at the very beginning of this march, to Golgotha. Reminds me of, remember in the Old Testament, Abraham and Isaac. Remember Abraham says, take, Isaac, take the wood. And Isaac puts the wood on his back and starts to walk with his father, not knowing that that very wood is the, the means of his impending death. But Jesus knows. He holds the wood. He knows this is the plan that God has. 
Once he is unable to carry his cross, Simon is brought in to pick it up and carries it all the way, middle of verse 17, to the place called the place of a skull. Some people say it's called that because it looked like a skull. Um, I, I don't think that's the case. It's because this is a place where everybody was executed. This is the place of execution. Golgotha is Hebrew. It's, it's uh, Aramaic more specifically. It just means skull. The Latin word for skull is Calvarius, Calvary, where we, we get Calvary from. Jesus is led out straight from Gabbatha, you remember the, the judgment seat, to Golgotha. Notice, he is led straight out and crucified in verse 18. There's no week that's required in the Jewish law. In Jewish law, if a man was condemned to die, he had to have a week for other witnesses to come and to say, he is not guilty, he's innocent. And there is no week that is given. There's no time. It's condemned, guilty, and taken away. But also Rome is breaking protocol here as well because they were supposed to, by law, give two days to wait, to crucify, to execute a common criminal because what if they got the verdict wrong? So both Jews and Romans are breaking protocol to crucify an innocent man. But this is no surprise to us because this is exactly the way it was prophesied. 750 years before Jesus was crucified, in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 8, Isaiah wrote, By oppression and judgment, he will be taken away. He's oppressed, he's judged, and he's taken away. If Isaiah knew the customs of the day, Isaiah would have put, He's oppressed, he's judged, and there's a seven-day period of time waiting to see if he's truly guilty, and then he will be taken away. But Isaiah doesn't write that, because God didn't write that. God wrote, this is exactly how it's going to go down. Rome dances to God's jig. So they lead him away. They lead him. He doesn't panic. He doesn't struggle. He follows. Because Isaiah 53 verse 7 says he is led like a sheep to slaughter. He doesn't need to be driven. Cattle are driven. Sheep follow. They're led. And Jesus, the Lamb of God, as we sang about earlier, is led away to his slaughter. And he's crucified. Verse 18, there they crucified him. They crucified him. The Synoptic Gospels tell us that as they were crucifying him, they offered him a painkiller, wine mixed with gall or myrrh. They offered him a, a substance that would enable him to feel a little bit less pain, dull the pain, but he doesn't take it. Why does he not drink this painkiller? There's two reasons in my mind that he doesn't drink this painkiller. The first is he needs his wits about him. He needs to be fully in control because he has seven things that he still has yet to say, and he needs to make sure that he says them clearly, articulately, so that we can hear them. He still has work to do. He still has to take care of his mother. He needs to make sure that she's taken care of when he passes away. He needs to make sure that the thief on the cross is told, today you'll be with me in paradise. He needs to make sure that ministry still happens. But number two, he needs to fully experience every single amount of pain and suffering associated with the wrath of God. He needs to experience infinite wrath and feel it fully because if he were to take a Tylenol and feel one percentage less of infinite wrath and infinite suffering, how much infinite wrath would we still have to bear? Infinite. It would be infinity. You can't take away from infinity. If he says, okay, I'm going to feel just a, a sliver less, well, we still have infinite punishment. So he needs to experience every single aspect of the wrath of God. And he's crucified as a common criminal, verse 18, with two other men, one on either side, in between two thieves. He is taking the place literally, physically, as a sinner. He's taking the place of a sinner. And this is to fulfill prophecy as well. Isaiah 53, verse 12, he is numbered with the transgressors. He's numbered with the transgressors. John tells us, uh, verse 19, he jumps right into Pilate writing the inscription. And we'll continue to look at this, but 
This is where I want to zip up all of the Gospels together. It's, it's the process we call harmonizing the Gospels. We want to make um, the four Gospels fit together and see how they work together. They're all specifically looking at, at aspects that maybe the other one wouldn't be looking at. So we're going to put them all together to see the fullest picture of everything that happens on this day in human history. So turn over to Luke, because Luke tells us that Jesus is going to say something. Luke chapter 23. Jesus is going to speak. Jesus is going to say something that Luke is going to record for us. Only Luke records this saying. This is the first of seven sayings that Jesus is going to speak on the cross, all of which are incredibly important for us today. Charles Spurgeon said this, Are you content to follow Jesus from a distance? Are you content to just let him walk ahead and, eh, I, I kind of know who he is. He says, oh, let me affectionately warn you, for it is a grievous thing when we can live contentedly without the present enjoyment of the Savior's face. Let us work to feel what an evil thing this is, little love to our own dying Savior, little joy in our precious Jesus, little fellowship with the beloved. Hold true remorse in your soul while you sorrow over your hardness of heart, but do not stop at sorrow. Remember where you first received salvation and go at once, go at once to the cross. There and only there can your spirit be woken up. No matter how hard, no matter how insensible, no matter how dead we may have become, let's go again. Yes, let's go again in all the rags and poverty and depravity of our natural condition. Let's clasp that cross. Let's look into those eyes. Let's bathe in that fountain filled with blood. This will bring us back to our first love. This will restore the simplicity of our faith and the tenderness of our heart. And then Spurgeon says this, the more we dwell where the cries of Calvary can be heard, the more noble our lives become. Nothing puts life into men like a dying Savior. So I want us this morning to dwell where the cries of Calvary can be heard. I want us to dwell at the base of the cross of Calvary. I want us to look up into Jesus' face and to hear him speak these words. That's why we're going to take the next few weeks to just see every aspect of what's going on in this account. We're not just going to keep going through John. We're going to see every gospel record give us the fullest picture we can of what's happening because I want us to dwell where the cries of Calvary can be heard. Luke chapter 23, verse 33. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But... Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. This is the first of the seven statements from the cross that Jesus makes. As Jesus is being nailed to the cross, or maybe as he's being hoisted up after being nailed, or the first moments that the cross has rested in the hole that was dug in the ground for it, he speaks these words. While his hands cannot serve those around him because they're pinned to a tree, and while his feet cannot run to meet needs because they're nailed to a cross, still he ministers through a prayer. One commentator says, At this moment of inconceivable horror, the voice of the song of man was heard, lifted up. The voice of Jesus lifted up as a song, not in a scream, of natural agony at that fearful torture, but calmly praying in divine compassion for his brutal and pitiless murderers. When man is doing their worst, Jesus prays, not for their judgment, but for their forgiveness. In this verse, we see the restraint of a man who had the power to destroy, but instead chooses to forgive. J.C. Ryle says, These words were probably spoken while our Lord was being nailed to the cross or as soon as the cross was reared up on its end. And it is worthy to remark that as soon as the blood of the great sacrifice began to flow, the great high priest began to intercede. He intercedes. And again, 
This is fulfillment of prophecy. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12. He interceded for the transgressors. Maybe at the exact moment that a nail is being driven through his wrist, he cries out, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He says, Father, an intimate relationship. He's not going to continue to say Father on the cross because the next time that he speaks to his Father, he's going to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The intimacy is gone. The relationship is broken because now the wrath of God is being poured out. The punishment against our sin is being given to Jesus. But here, that punishment isn't being poured out yet. And he cries out, Father, intimate relationship with the family, Father. But he asks the Father to forgive. This is really interesting because up until this point in the gospel accounts, Jesus never asked the Father to forgive. Jesus forgave. Mark chapter 2, a paralytic man dropped through the roof by his friends. Son, your sins are forgiven. He didn't have to say, Father, please forgive this man's sins. Why? Because Jesus is God. So why does he change here to say, Father, do the forgiving? There are many different opinions on this and different interpretations, and I believe the simplest one is that Jesus is praying that the, the sacrifice that he is currently going through would be the means by which these men would be forgiven. Father, use the sacrifice that I am now offering to you in a way that would be pleasing to you to forgive. Use this sacrifice. They don't know what they're doing. Forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. He's speaking about the Roman guards. They don't even know who I am. He, I think he's also speaking about the Jewish leaders. Even though they know who Jesus is, they don't know the full extent of who Jesus is. And Peter says this in Acts chapter 2, if you had only known who you were killing, you acted in ignorance, so you killed him. But if you had known, you wouldn't have killed him. Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8. If you had understood, you would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Oh, you knew who he was, but you didn't really know. But notice, ignorance does not get you off the hook. Ignorance still needs forgiveness. God never lowers his standard of justice to the level of our ignorance. Sins committed in ignorance are still sin. Just think about it in our culture. If I get pulled over by a police officer and he says, do you know why I pulled you over? And I say, officer, I'm sorry, I do not. What did I do? I'm so sorry. And he says, you were speeding. Do you know what the speed limit is? And I say, oh, I don't know what it is. I don't, I'm sorry. If, I, if only I had known, I would have kept the law, but I didn't know. Is the police officer going to say, oh, you didn't know? Oh, well then, enjoy. Have a nice day. No, he's going to say, well, you should do a better job of learning what the, the speed limits are here. And I'm sorry, but I still have to write your ticket. You still broke the law. Ignorance does not get you off the hook. So Jesus says they don't know what they're doing, but they still need forgiveness. How does the Father answer this prayer? We don't see it here, but we see it in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2, 3, 6. The Father answers with yes. Roman soldiers are forgiven. Jewish leaders are forgiven. When Peter cries out to the men who had crucified, men, you crucified the Lord of glory, and they repent. What should we do? They repent. The Father answers Jesus' prayer by saying, yes, I will forgive. I will forgive. Notice forgiveness is not the end goal here. Forgive them, not just to remove the guilt, but to bring them into the family of God. Reconciliation is the goal, right? Forgiveness just gets stuff out of the way so we can be reconciled. So many people look at I just want to be forgiven. I just want to be forgiven. I just want guilt gone. I want shame gone. And that's a beautiful blessing of the gospel. But the point of the gospel is not just to get your guilt gone. It's to get you connected with Jesus Christ in a relationship with him where you love him, not just love the fact that your guilt's been removed. Notice Jesus says, forgive them who are currently crucifying me. I don't know about you, but there are people in my life that I think, hmm, I've been praying for this person for a long time. They do not seem to care at all about Jesus. And I think that they might be beyond the reach of hope. 
This verse screams out to me, no one is beyond the reach of hope. These people are murdering Jesus and they're going to get saved. Nobody is beyond God's grace. Nobody is beyond God's grace. So Luke tells us, again, only Luke tells us that Jesus' first words from the cross are, Father, forgive them, ministering with love, with kindness. Notice also, he asks the Father to forgive them before they have even asked for forgiveness. This is incredibly instructive for our hearts. You can forgive somebody from your heart before they ever come to you and ask you for forgiveness. You can forgive them from your heart, and you must. The Bible says you must forgive them. That interaction should be such that when they end up coming to you and saying, would you please forgive me for what I did, that there should be no more struggle in your heart. Of course I forgive you because I've already forgiven you. I love you. It's gone. Reconciled. Jesus does this high priestly work at the cross. Turn back to John 19, John chapter 19, verse 19. We will finish out this section. Pilate, verse 19 of chapter 19, also wrote an inscription and he put it on the cross. And it says, Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. And many of the Jews, when they read this, because the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. It's outside of the city, but it's near the city. They wanted to put it in a main uh, road. They want to put it on a main uh, junction so that everybody can see these men who are dying. You don't want to do what they did. And that's why we'd put the little bl- the billboard, the placard above their head. So that as you're walking by, as I'm walking by with my kids and they say, Daddy, why is he up there? I can say, well, look, he stole from Rome. Look, he killed a Roman officer. Don't ever do that or you'll wind up like him. They were using these forms of punishment to announce to the world, don't be involved in sedition. Don't try to overthrow us. So he writes the placard. But in doing so, he writes truthful and sarcastic. What Pilate is doing is both truthful and honest and also sarcastic. It's truthful. As we looked at, he knows, Pilate knows Jesus is innocent. He is not a seditionist. He is not trying to overthrow Rome. The Jews want him to be killed for trying to overthrow Rome. That's why they say, no, 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 take that down and put, he claimed to be the king. He claimed to be a rival of Caesar. But Jesus says he never claimed that. He is not a seditionist. Therefore, I'm just going to leave it as king of the Jews. He never claimed to be your king in the way you think. But it's also sarcastic because he says, this is the best you have for a king. This is the best you got up here. This is your king. That's all you have. That's why they say, please take this down. They know that Pilate is both condemning them for their dishonesty and indicting them, but he's also making fun of them. And he's doing it in three languages. He says, you know what, I'm going to get the last laugh, guys, and I'm also going to get the last laugh in three languages, in Hebrew, which is the Jewish tongue, in Latin, which is the Roman tongue, and in Greek, which is the universal language. So everybody can read this. But, Not even Pilate, with all of his attempts to get the last laugh, not even Pilate can get the last laugh. God's the one who gets the last laugh. A thousand years before this moment, the psalmist said in Psalm 2, God sits in the heavens and laughs at those that are trying to thwart his plan. You cannot thwart the plan of God. Even in Pilate writing this, this inscription, this, uh, in Latin, this titulus, this title nailed to the tree. Pilate, without even knowing it, is giving us one of the first records of a tract, a gospel tract. Because he puts, here's the king of the Jews, and in a couple of hours, there's going to be a thief who says, Jesus, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. How does that thief know that Jesus is a king? Pilate, with truth and sarcasm, says, I'm going to put this placard up on the cross and make fun of everyone. And in doing that, this thief looks and says, you are a king. I know you're a king. We'll look at that next week. There is glory and there is victory in all of this seemingly disastrous and defeated moments. These moments seem the darkest in all of human history, and they are and yet glory is shining through. Not even Pilate trying to get the last laugh can make it happen. So, 
Pilate answers, verse 22, what I have written, I have written. It's staying up there. You cannot take it down. Then, verse 23, the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts. They would normally, uh, Jewish people would wear four different layers. And so everyone gets, there are four soldiers that are crucified. Everyone gets a part. And then they took this tunic, which is seamless, woven in one piece. It's one piece. It's one piece of fabric. Uh, Jewish customs were for the, uh, the mother to make this one piece woven together, this uh, completely seamless woven piece of um, clothing. And the mother would make it specifically for the day that the son would move out. Here, son, a very special, beautiful, uh, so this can be close to your heart, and this is one piece given to you from my heart. It was a custom. So here is a, a token of Mary's love, and we're going to look at her in depth next week, but a token of Mary's love for her son, who she sees now being crucified, who she sees this piece, seamless, beautiful fabric. They say, no, we shouldn't tear it. Let's cast lots for it. This was to fulfill scripture, verse 24. They're going to shoot dice for this beautiful piece of fabric. Why? Because a thousand years earlier, David had said that this would happen. Psalm chapter 22, verse 18. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. That's the exact same psalm that happens to start in verse 1 like this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So they take this, this beautiful piece of fabric, this beautiful undergarment. They say, let's not tear it. And this was to fulfill the scriptures. The Old Testament also tells us that there was another individual who was required to wear a seamless garment under all of their clothes. And that person was the high priest, a pure, seamless, beautiful tunic. And Jesus, our great high priest, is dying on the cross in our place, interceding for us as he dies. Verse 25, therefore the soldiers did these things. John's going to continue to tell us about Mary and about Jesus' next statement from the cross, and we'll look at that in depth next week. But as we wrap up this morning, there's three Three points by way of conclusion. Number one, look at the prophecy being fulfilled. This is God's plan. We're seeing glory. Pilate handed him over, delivered him over. It's very legal language to, to describe condemned, handed over for a legal reason. That exact same Greek word is used in Romans 8, verse 32, when Paul writes that God delivered Jesus over for us all. Pilate delivered Jesus because God had delivered Jesus. Nothing can happen outside of God's perfect plan. If you are here this morning and you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you have bowed the knee to him as master of your life. You've been crucified with Christ, uh, Galatians 2.20, and you no longer live, but Jesus lives in you. Then you have the promise that everything in your life will work together for your good and the conformity of your character to Christ and for God's glory. There is nothing that happens to you for an accident. There is no tear that is wasted. There is no moment of your life, no matter how painful or difficult it is, that is purposeless. God's working everything together just as he worked these moments. Number two, listen to the Savior speak. Stare at the prophecy fulfilled. Listen to the Savior speak. Listen to him cry out from the cross, Father, forgive them. Could you say that in a moment of immense suffering? The reality is forgiveness sounds like an amazing idea until you're the one who has to do it. We love the idea of forgiveness. But when it comes time for us to have to do the forgiving, it's incredibly hard. So, can I just ask, is there anyone in your life that you are currently struggling to forgive? Maybe you've grown bitter towards somebody. Bitterness is like drinking poison and hoping it will kill the other person. It never works. It just destroys you. 
Instead, you should pursue forgiveness, biblical, gospel, Jesus-like forgiveness. That includes four promises. When you forgive the way that Jesus forgives us, it includes four promises. Number one, you promise, I'm not going to dwell on this incident. I'm not dwelling on this anymore. It's done, forgiven, it's taken out of the way, we're done. Number two, I'm not going to bring it up and use it against you. I'm not going to bring it up and use it against you. I think that's one of the biggest promises that married couples break. When they bring something up from the past that was already dealt with and forgiven, and they bring it up and they say, wait, we need to talk about this again. No, if you've truly forgiven, you're not going to dwell on it and you're not going to bring it up. Number three, promise number three, you're not going to talk to others about the incident. You're not going to say, I forgive you, and then go around to somebody else and say, how could they have done that? It's forgiven. It's gone. Just like Jesus does with us, as far as the east is from the west, he's not bringing it back up to throw it in our face and say, look at what you've done. Promise number four, I will not allow this incident to stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. It's done. It's not forgive and forget. Many people think that that's biblical. That's not biblical because God doesn't forgive and forget. God can't forget anything. He remembers everything. But he chooses not to bring it up. That's what the passage says in the book of Psalms. He forgives you and then he chooses never to bring it up before you. And that's the same thing that we have to do. Oh, how often the moment that we say, I forgive you. And from our heart, we genuinely mean it. We say, I forgive you. It's forgiven. It's done. And then we walk away and the devil says, nah, look at what they did to you. You're forgiving that? No way. Just keep on remembering that. Let it fester This has changed your relationship. No, the the devil brings that up. He's the adversary. He's the accuser of the brethren, and he divides us. And that's where we say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, devil. That sin was forgiven at the cross by Jesus, and I have forgiven them as well, so that's gone. That's gone. No one is beyond the reach of God's grace. As Jesus cries out, Father, forgive them. Finally, number three, so see the prophecy fulfilled, listen to the Savior speak, and then number three, see salvation accomplished. See salvation accomplished. The crucifixion of Jesus tells us what we need to be saved from. We need to be saved from our sin and its penalty. The Bible says all of us have sinned. We know we've done things that are wrong, and we've sinned against God. We've broken his law. Just as if, uh, going back to the police officer, if you break a law of the land, there's going to be a punishment. There has to be a punishment. If you break God's law, God is infinite, so the punishment is infinite. But God loves us too much to leave us sitting under that judgment. God said, no, I love you. John 3, 16, you know it. God so loved the world that he gave Jesus his only son. Jesus was born. He lived a perfect, sinless life that you and I needed to live to get to God on our own, but we could never live. We've all sinned. We've all messed up. We've all done things that are wrong and broken God's law. So God sends Jesus to live sinlessly, perfection. And then at the cross, God the Father treats Jesus as if Jesus had lived my sinful life. So Jesus is punished in my place, bearing my punishment, my penalty, so that the Father can treat me as if I lived Jesus' perfect life. I'm seen as perfectly holy because of what Jesus did, his life of perfection. He died on the cross, he rose from the dead, conquering sin and death once for all. You say, well, how do we get that? perfection? How do we get that holiness placed into our account? How do we get our sins forgiven? You can't do anything. It's not karma. It's not good works. You can try to be good, but your goodness will never take away your bad works. You need Jesus to do that. And simply by faith, admitting I am a lawbreaker. I have broken your law, and I know that I should be punished. And I believe that Jesus took that punishment for me, and I want to be seen before the Father as perfectly righteous, not on any goodness that we can give to God, but on God's amazing grace to us. We are Simon of Cyrene. We think we are innocent. Please let everybody know I'm carrying this man's cross, but he's the one who's guilty, not me. 
when in reality we are the guilty party, deserving of that cross that we are holding. And Jesus willingly, gladly, rejoicingly takes the cross from our hands and says, I'll die your death so you can go free. That's what we celebrate when we come to the Lord's table. Communion is a celebration of substitutionary atonement, of a covering for sin that is in our place. Jesus took our place by living our sinless life that we needed to live. Jesus took our place by dying a death that bears the penalty of a sinner. And he rose from the dead, conquering sin and death once and for all, and offers us the free gift of eternal life. These elements provide us a way to remember that physically, tangibly. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask the men, um, I'm going to pray and ask the men to come and distribute these elements. We're going to sing uh, a song that reminds us of clinging to the cross, not our goodness, not our good works. Our good works cannot get us to God. And as these are passed out while we are singing, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, these elements are for you to take hold on to them. We will take them together to remember Jesus' sacrifice. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, you don't know that if today were the day that you were to die and stand before God, you don't know with confident assurance that you would be uh, entering into heaven, then just let these elements pass you by. These are for believers. But I would encourage you, today is the day of salvation. The Bible says today is the day to stop and to think, what would happen to me? Have you trusted in Jesus' forgiveness on your behalf? his perfection placed into your account. Today is the day to trust him. Father, we ask that as we prepare to partake of communion, as these elements are passed, as we hang on to them, and then we take them together as a church family, God, we are amazed by grace. Grace is amazing. Jesus is amazing. We want to dwell where the cries of Calvary can be heard. Nothing puts life into men like a dying Savior. And we want to stare at the death of our Savior this morning as we've done. And we want to let that push us forward in freedom and forgiveness. We have been forgiven. As we're going to see in a couple weeks, Jesus is going to cry out. It's been paid in full. It's finished. The sacrifice is enough. And so we cling to you. We cling to that sacrifice. We don't cling to our goodness. We could never be good enough because we have to be perfect to get to heaven on our own. And we've all broken your law. And that's why we love the fact that you predetermined a plan to save us. And we trust in that plan. We trust in your salvation. And we love you. As we sing now, may we sing from hearts that are blown away by Jesus. And then may we celebrate together the substitutionary atonement of Christ. We love him, we pray it in his name. Amen.